There was recently a shooting at a shopping mall closest to my home. This is the mall that I took my kids to when they were little. The following morning, my daughter texted me with news of the shooting. Her message was, Happy Easter. This is life now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 81, as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm joined by emergency management and business continuity thought leader, Corrine Thorkelson. In this week's episode, Corrine and I talk about how important it is for you to consider active attackers and acts of violence in your business continuity and crisis management program. We talk about good practices for run, hide, and fight, and the value of appointing staff to interact with law enforcement. As my daughter said, this is life now, and your resilience program better be paying attention. What can you learn from this episode? Let's find out. Kareen, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. We were ta- just talking about how we knew each other, but we couldn't remember how. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll get that, it. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Well, let's start by introducing yourself to the audience. Sure. So my name is Kareen Thorkelson. I'm currently a business continuity manager at Entrust, which is a leading global provider of solutions that secure payments, identities, and data. So I've been in the field of business continuity and emergency management for over 15 years, and I have experience in both the private and public sectors. And I also volunteered with our local disaster management Red Cross for quite a long time. And I'm actually really looking forward to this discussion today. Someone had mentioned to me that you have quite a distinction, like are you the first female. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so Canada has um, just really started picking up um, the education side of emergency management. So I am one of um, our the first graduating class of a graduate certificate in emergency management here in Ontario, Canada. But I'm also um, part of the first graduating class for uh, a master's degree in disaster and emergency management from uh, Royal Roads University that was opened to uh, the general public. So before a master's level degree was available, but only to those in service. So only those who were um, active police officers in fire, military, so on and so forth. And it was the first year where they opened it to those in other disciplines. And my background was in health. And so um, it was the first time that that was, that was offered to others. And it's been very interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And your background is perfect. And I know you've done some training on this and some other uh, presentations and so forth. But yeah. today, what we want to do is talk about active attacker. Uh, mm-hmm. And before we get too far into that, explain why we're now using the phrase active attacker instead of active shooter. Right. Uh, so the term active attacker can be used instead of active shooter, as active shooter doesn't always cover the range of weapons that could be used to inflict harm on others. So if we're talking in the context of a workplace, an active attacker incorporates a larger number of scenarios that ultimately result in the same outcome of staff being injured and what a response to that would look like. I generally use the term active attacker when doing training as we're training for a response to a life-threatening event. And many of the actions or outcomes from a business perspective 
would be similar regardless of the weapon in use. Now, you mentioned that this isn't exactly the most fun conversation to be having, but it is important right now. Uh, At the time of this recording, we're just getting bombarded with one incident after another, particularly in the U.S. Right. Um, And um, it's... um, I think it's very, very timely. So thank you for being willing to to walk us through this. Of course. I, I want to focus on shooting for a moment. So we're nearing the end of April at the time of this recording. Since January 1st, uh, there have been 165 mass shooting events in the U.S. Uh, a mass shooting event describes... Uh, an, an incident that has a minimum of four victims yeah. uh, that are shot, either injured or killed, not including the shooter who may have also been injured or killed. Yeah. And a lot of these are in personal space, right? We just heard of one not too long ago at a birthday party, but it's not uncommon for these incidents to, to occur in the workplace. And sometimes we don't think of it that way. Uh, a school is a workplace, a mall is a workplace. So talk about how we need to be prepared for this type of violence when we give thought to things like business continuity and crisis management. Yeah. (laughs) So the increase in the number of these kinds of attacks is just, it's staggering. I mean, you look at the numbers and it's a really hard pill to swallow. So the cause of this increase is multi multifaceted, but regardless, you know, we sort of, we need to prepare. And so people who become shooters or violent are often build up to it. And according to experts, attacks are almost always premeditated, planned, or even discussed. And there are what are known as um, pre-attack indicators or pains in quotation marks that you can't see. So this is when an individual may demonstrate certain behaviors that precede an attack. So an example of a pain would be when an individual flat out tells someone that they're going to or threaten to make such an attack, um, becomes increasingly erratic, has sudden or dramatic changes in their home life, such as a divorce, child custody battles. Um, And while each pain individually may seem harmless, collectively it could paint a really different picture. And this boils down to the message, if you see something, say something. Mm -hmm. And so we could easily turn a blind eye, but the message is not to ignore your feelings of uneasiness about a person or circumstance that you encounter and to tell someone. So businesses can um, utilize anonymous hotlines. They can encourage staff to raise such concerns with their managers or even HR, but have a really clear stance of what's to be done when those concerns do arise. So have, um, you know, access to mental health support. They can um, access their local resources, use their non-emergency lines to their local law enforcement. Um, But if you see something, say something. Uh, I want to follow up on that because I know personally, that if I wasn't 100% sure that someone was going to do a violent act, it would be hard for me to go to HR and say, uh, hey, I think Kareen is troubled and might be up to something, because you you run the risk of ruining, ruining someone's reputation, don't you? Like, how, how do you how do you reconcile those thoughts? 
I think it needs to come from a position of um, care and support that someone is acting differently from their norm. And so these are your coworkers. These are individuals that you spend a large portion of your day to day with because we work side by side with, you know, mm-hmm. our, our peers. And if someone is having difficulty, I don't see any harm and others may feel differently of raising concerns to say, you know, I really noticed that Joe's having a hard time lately. He used to, he used to join us for our lunch meetings you know, and he's been saying some pretty strange things, you know, is there a way that we could, you know, help support him or follow up with something that might be going on? You don't, there doesn't necessarily have to be an approach with um, one of these anonymous hotlines or even HR or your manager that says, you know, unless they've blatantly told you, I think Joe is going to do A, B, or C and make it very poignant and um, accusatory, but more along the lines of a, of a caring position of just saying, have others noticed? Because as soon as that um, opportunity for discussion arises, then others may also ping in and add to that as well. And I, that's when it starts to paint sort of a different picture. I'm going to get you to, to maybe expand on the impact that an active assailant, active attacker might have on a business um, or on a workplace, even it, it's possible that there could be an incident in the building, in the lobby of the building, or or throughout the office, or even in the community. Uh, other than the obvious, the personal harm to our people, talk about some of the impacts that an incident like this could have on a workplace. Mm-hmm. So these violent instances obviously can have a heavy toll. Um, trauma in relation to those who were present. So initially, we always think of those who were physically injured, but trauma just to those who were present um, can be a really big part of it. Will these staff members be returning to work? Uh, What kind of leave and support programs does your business have for that kind of situation? Mm -hmm. Uh, Loss of workplace and equipment is also another one that seems fairly obvious. But um, we do need to do some research on what would occur if our workspace does become a crime scene. Right. Does your continuity plan cover loss of facilities? Most likely, but for how long? And do you have appointed staff who would work directly with law enforcement? We usually pair up with our landlords and you know those who, who own the physical space if we do not. But what happens when another organization sort of takes over that space and what does your access then look like? So a mass shooting event would also require our strong communication strategies for both internal and external, but also include how to mediate the media presence. Um, A lot of these um, mass shooting events get glorified in one way or another. And so we also need to be sure to consult with law enforcement prior to releasing any information because it is an ongoing investigation and um, we have to tread carefully in what we put in print. I like what you said there about both of those things. If you go back and look at the professional practices um, under DRI, I think number 10 is interfacing with external agencies. And it's often overlooked, isn't it? I mean, it may maybe not totally overlooked, but certainly downplayed. But as important as this topic is right now in the business continuity and crisis management space, 
those are relationships that we absolutely need to develop. Uh, The other thing is media. And I do a lot of crisis communications work. I've done very, very little crisis communications work in response to um, violence in the workplace. And that's something that uh, I've learned from the podcast this week. Uh, And um, so I need to up my game on that as well. So thank you for, for saying both of those things. When there is an active attacker in the workplace, is run, hide, and fight still the predominant strategy? And and talk about you know the good practices for how that's deployed, if that's the right thing that we're doing still. Sure. So run, hide, fight, or the Canadian version of run, hide, defend, um, is still the predominant strategy. And it's uh, seen as the gold standard if taught correctly. And so The premise is that if you're passive in the face of extreme violence, you will get hurt. And you need to get out of the victim mindset and be aggressive with your response. Your response in this case being run, hide, or fight. If you're going to do it, it needs to be done is really kind of what the backbone of that is. And they also use another acronym called WIN, and it's what's important now. So what's important now is another approach that's used in conjunction with run, hide, and fight to help people make better choices in the moment. So for example, you are important, your belongings can wait. So Mm -hmm. if there is an opportunity to remove yourself from such a dangerous situation, run. Don't grab your things, don't get your purse, don't step to the room next to you, leave the situation. So we always also need to take a moment to situate ourselves in our surroundings, to know where the exits are. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, fighting or defending yourself may actually be the only option. And so there are some great um, resources, usually for free from local law enforcement that bring awareness of actions that can be taken in in this particular scenario, um, both during and after an incident. And I really encourage everyone to um, look at all these materials that are available. Um, There's some great videos done and even some local law enforcement will come and join the conversation when you're ready to have it with your staff. Let's talk about hide for a minute. You know, so many uh, of these new uh, office buildings, you know, everybody's into the glass doors and and all Mm -hmm. of that stuff. Kind of hard to hide behind a glass door. Uh, Do you have any tips for good hiding spots? So the hiding situation is always to make the best of your surroundings. You are not hiding if you are standing behind a glass door. That said, if that's where you are, turn off the lights and get behind any cabinets, under any desks, anything that you could um, remain unseen. It's not a game of hide and go seek. It's more of try to remove yourself from um, the way of the attacker that's currently taking place. And so um if you can you lock yourselves in rooms if you can't lock it then you can barricade it with anything that you have available uh turn off your don't turn off your cell phone but turn off the ringer even the vibrate mode um so that the light doesn't come on and that it makes um noises that could draw attention to yourself airplane mode is your best friend in that scenario The reason you don't want to turn it off is because um, it can be tracked and, uh, you know, you still want to be able to call 911 when it's safe to do so. So we wouldn't necessarily recommend turning it off, but 
any forms of, of noise or lights would be would be a good option. You know, it's interesting. I like the tips you gave about the cell phone because you're right. You don't want you don't want to do anything that's going to draw attention of the assailant. Talk to me. I have two follow-up questions on that. The first is, on average, how long do these types of incidents last? Mm. From let's say that first bullet um, until you know it's it's over, either with law enforcement or the person uh, leaving or their life being taken. What you know? What's the typical duration? I think it really depends on the specific scenario, but I I would not say that this is a long drawn out process. Sometimes for those who are in hiding, it can be um, a long duration because officers need to make a clean sweep before they will um, start finding individuals once they found the assailant. That's the other thing, the assailant comes first. If law enforcement has arrived, They will ask you to step out of the way or to get out of the way. Um, Don't make big um, gestures towards them. Um, And um, they will step over the injured to take down the assailant before they start coming back and and helping evacuate everyone. So the process itself can be quite lengthy, but in terms of um, damage being done, it depends on the response time of local law enforcement. It also depends if any of the victims have taken matters into their own hands uh, and what that looks like. By the way, for any of our listeners who are in uh, the US or are in parts of the country where concealed carry is an option, if you do ever remove an assailant, um, be sure to put down your weapon put up your hands and um, even put yourself to the ground so that if an unsuspecting officer comes around, they don't see someone with a weapon over another individual and mistake you for the assailant. This is very high stress for those responding as well. Right. Um, so that's also something to be aware of that us Canadians don't necessarily talk about <laughs> as much, but um, it is sort of the truth to the matter. So. The um, event itself, very short. We're talking, you know, several minutes, but um, the event at large can be quite lengthy to evacuate everyone, um, handle the wounded, um, remove those who may not have survived, and the crime scene itself can be a quite lengthy process. Yeah, and you uh, have led me nicely to the second follow-up I had, and that is the all-clear yeah. Uh, if you're hiding, you stay <laughs> hiding until you're notified by law enforcement that everything's good. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Uh, all right. Let's talk about training and how do we train an organization for this type of response? It, it You said in a presentation you did one time that the training not only has to be for the individuals, but mm-hmm. also for the organization. What do you mean by that? So actions that an individual takes before police or law enforcement arrive could save their lives, period. Hmm. So that's where our focus needs to be in terms of training. So once the threat has passed, that's when your organization needs to know what to do to get things back up and running again. So individuals, so i.e. your staff, come first then your continuity plans need to kick in and address the damage. 
when we're training individuals within our organization, unless you are first responders, we are not training first responders. We are training staff, civilians, however you want to, you know, encompass your, those that you're training. And um, it's their life and safety first. So we focus on the individual and then we focus on the organizational response to, you know, the, the threats that we mentioned earlier. So loss of equipment, crisis communications, loss of space, those kind of pieces. I see. Okay. And part of that training would need to be the running of exercises. And you talk about tabletop exercises uh, in situations like that. Tell me how that works when planning for an active attacker. How, How would a tabletop work? So with any training or exercise, we always need to know our audience. And a tabletop is a great way for an organization to work through the impacts of such an incident. Again, we need to focus on the outcomes. So the trauma to our staff, the loss of office space, the need for strong crisis communications. Um, The other thing that I'll point out here that I think I forgot to mention earlier was to review the social media policies Hmm. about whether, you know, what you as an organization, you know, would suggest your staff, you know, releasing on social media. And um, the tabletop is, is a great way to sort of walk through through what that would look like. Okay, you're really good at triggering uh, extra questions <laughs> here. And so I'm going to jump off on social media for a second. Yeah. Now, I'm always of the opinion, let's start with the premise here. I'm always of the opinion that during a crisis, I don't want Sally or Ed from accounting tweeting that they've been hacked or working from home today because, you know, whatever. I, I like communications to go through the proper channels. In a situation like this, I almost don't mind people tweeting, help call 911, active assailant in our office, whatever. I mean, am, am I missing something here? Like, tell me your views on that. You're not missing anything in my, in my opinion, to have this sort of violent act occur on your property shall we say from like the business points of view yeah is nothing that has to do with the business and the business's Mm. um thoughts and approach to the situation will come later but in the moment i don't think there should be any recommendation for an individual tweeting or on facebook or any sort of social media platform about an experience that they're having that is up to the nth degree. And so, and so I agree with you. I think official crisis communications and details about, you know, what the company's stance are, that all needs to be done through the crisis crisis communications process. And, you know, that's all been done and premeditated beforehand, but the individuals in terms of an event need to be able uh, to reach out in that space. And, and I would have to agree with you. Yeah, now that's really interesting. Let's let's jump back into exercising here because we talked about tabletops, but I, I'd like to know what your thoughts are about maybe expanding that and taking that up to more of a drill-oriented kind of an exercise. Do you recommend that? If we were to do that, would we bring in emergency services and make this as real as possible? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. h- how do we do that? 
So we have to be really careful with this kind of scenario. It's very emotionally charged and we really need to pause and think about what the outcomes of our training are that we want to see. So for this type of scenario, a drill or a functional exercise would be of high value in the right circumstances for first responders, for example, um, if my business was a school, perhaps a drill would be of value. Mm -hmm. Um, They have strong active shooter policies and plans in that space. But for general office workers, that kind of realism, just it might be too much. So I believe in um, authenticity and I believe that having a representative of law enforcement at the table to really discuss what decision makers can expect if police were to respond to this kind of incident within their organization, like what that would look like. Absolutely agree a hundred percent, but to play this out with general office workers, I think would invoke, certain feelings and emotions that just aren't needed for the outcome that we would be looking for. All right. That's really good advice. I I, I need to tell you a story. So the night before Easter Sunday, there was um, uh, a, a mass shooting in a mall uh, about a half an hour from where I raised my family. Mm. And my daughter texted me on mm. Sunday and she had a link of the shooting at the mall. And she said, happy Easter. This is life now. And she's not wrong. And she went on to tell me how she and her husband are changing the way they go out in public. They pay attention to certain things. They're more cognizant of their surroundings and things like that. So my question to you as someone who is really focused on this as part of your career How has your work in this area made you more aware of your surroundings when you're in a crowd? And what specifically do you look for? First of all, I'm sorry. That's not a text any parent wants (laughs) to get. No, I know. It just, it just goes to show how it, it hits home. And it's one of those incidents that hits home a lot harder than we, you know, initially give it credit for. So, um, but to but to your question, so my research in the area and in talking with various law enforcement officer officers have really made me a little more aware of my surroundings when I'm in a crowd. So I tend to really know my exits if I'm yeah. going somewhere that's really populated, because again, my the run, hide, defend run is always going to be my first option. And I need to know where my exits are. Um, But the other thing I'll point out is to call 911 or law enforcement when it's safe to do so. And so the one thing that I'll mention is that when something so drastic happens, so many people assume someone else has called it in. And no dispatcher has ever gotten upset that another citizen took two minutes to call and provide whether whatever information they know is. And you'd be surprised on how many incidents I myself have called 911 for thinking, oh, I could just add, you know, my perspective that may help. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was the first one to call. 
you know, and so in a day and age when social media is so big, we still need to start with that initial 911 call to give our law enforcement the best opportunity that they can to help in these situations. And yeah. so when you're in a crowd, it's, it's knowing your exits, you know, your, your fire safety protocols on where to go. If something were to happen, this follows the same suit, but just a reminder to also call 911 if something like this does occur. Yeah. I like that. Thank you. Kareen, really helpful stuff. The half hour just flew by here. How can people connect with you to learn more about this? Right. So the best way to get in touch with me these days would be LinkedIn. If, yep. uh, and that's, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me for now. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on this. You're right. It's not exactly a, an uplifting topic, but it's one that we do need to talk about. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I want to thank Kareen Thorkelson for being my guest today and giving us excellent insights about active attackers and how to be better prepared for violence in the workplace. I also want to thank the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the podcast. And next week, we're going to continue to explore additional threats that we need to consider in our resilience program. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.